Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We made it through another week. Toronto Blue Jays keep doing the win one, lose one thing. But hey, they're winning series, right? That's what matters-ish. They're doing pretty well to take care of business against non-American League East opponents. I had a tweet queued up from Chris Black, our pal who was on the show Monday, who uh, we fixed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. together. Um, But as is always the case these days, uh, Twitter's not working very well right now. (laughs) Um, So uh, anyway, there, there was some additional context there to the... The Jays' ability to take care of non-division opponents, at least. Uh, They have won nine of the 12 series. They've played against non-American League East opponents. They're 24-12 in those games overall. The approach in a division as good as the American League East is, and this is painting with a broad brush, but generally, go 500 in your division, do the damage against other divisions. That's where you make your bones. In the standings, the Jays have done one of those two things. 24 and 12 record against non-American League East opponents is a really good one. Even if uh, you certainly want that Wednesday game back, you'd like probably the middle game against Minnesota back. You'd like one of those Phillies games back. 24 and 12 is good work. You got to take care of the American League East side of that, though. And because the Jays haven't, that means, you know, later in the season when the schedule turns AL East heavy again, they will have to take care of business then. Or they just have to take care of business to such a dramatic degree outside of their division uh, to make up those games. Lots of time left to do that, but it's a pretty big hole. Yesterday, another good step in that direction. 3-1 victory. Jays jump on the Brewers. Early jump on Freddie Peralta early three runs in the first off a pair of home runs. And boy, after two days of a million balls in play, a no strikeout game, a a game with double digit singles. It was nice to see some balls just leave the yard. Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman hitting home runs in that first inning. Kevin Gosman has been poorly supported this year. The Jays are coming in at just about three runs on average. of support in a Kevin Gosman start didn't matter yesterday because Kevin Gosman is on such a ridiculous level right now. He goes six and two thirds shutout 11 strikeouts. He has now struck out 11 batters or more four times this season. Nobody else has done that. Take that Spencer Strider. Uh, Jay's bullpen mostly clear from there other than Romano giving up a, uh, it was scored a triple, Uh, not the best, uh, I mean, Kevin Kiermaier had a ridiculous defensive day, so you can certainly forgive him for not completely uh, timing the dive well on what became a Rowdy Telez triple. That was fun anyway to see Telez hammering around the base paths for a triple. Uh, The Jays are off to New York now for a series against the Mets. We'll tee that up throughout the show. We've got Bobby Wagner who's a Mets fan and does the tip and pitches baseball podcast coming up with us at 11 o'clock. Hannah Kaiser from Yahoo sports and MLB now is going to join us at 1130. Caitlin McGrath is going to join us in a moment here, but uh, a special note that around 1030 Sarah Langs of MLB is going to come on with us. Um, Sarah, you, you maybe got to know on Jay's talk plus last year. She's one of the best absolute best stats researchers at at MLB uh, at MLB.com terrific writer terrific podcaster and one of the most beloved people 
around the sport of baseball. And she told us heading into the playoffs last season that, that she'd been diagnosed with ALS. Well, today is Lou Gehrig day uh, around major league baseball and Sarah, who grew up uh, in New York, going to Mets games is going to be a part of pregame ceremonies uh, during Mets Jays today as part of Lou Gehrig day and, and to continue to raise awareness of and, and funds for ALS. You see, I'm wearing my uh, Sarah Lang's baseball is the best t-shirt with end ALS down it vertically. I will talk about a lot of that and we'll talk about Sarah's story with her uh, around 1030. So uh, make sure you stay tuned in for that and check out all. I mean, Sarah's doing posting a lot of stuff on Twitter today as well in terms of resources and her story at S Langs on sports. So we'll get into all that right now, though, we have a Jays team that might be taking a step in the right direction. Maybe I don't want to have that football yanked out from under you as you go into New York for three against the Mets and then you get ready to host the Astros. But things have been better the last couple of days. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic joins us now. And Caitlin, I took my mom to the game Wednesday. Kevin Kiermaier returned to the lineup. Uh, yesterday, he makes a handful of ridiculous catches. And I say the mom part because for non-baseball reasons, Kevin Kiermaier might be someone who uh, my mom appreciated more than the average player at that game. Um, <laughs> Are you at all surprised at the degree to which he has become such a resounding fan favorite over his first two months as a Toronto Blue Jay? Um, I don't know that I'm surprised. I do remember at the start of the year thinking it happened quickly than even I could anticipate. Like, I think even, I mean, they remember they started the um, year on such a long road trip. So, we didn't get to see how like the crowd would really react to Kiermaier. And then I think uh, like thinking back to that angel series before they um, came home, he had a really big game. And then I remember at the home opener, he got like such a loud ovation, like louder than a lot of the players. Um, Not quite like Bowen's lad levels, but certainly up there. And I remember thinking like, yeah, he's already a fan favorite. I mean, he's very likable. Um, he plays a very sort of like gritty style that I think appeals to a lot of fans, especially Toronto fans. I think that there's always been a type of player that Toronto fans really um, are uh, like attracted to. And I think he kind of meets that Um, and he's been playing really well. I mean, I think that he's his defense. Well, we always knew that it was really, really, really good. I think that there was sort of maybe some question marks about obviously coming off the hip surgery and like, He's, you know, not not as young as he used to be. Um, And so it's always kind of question marks about how he's going to play. He looked as good um, as ever in the field, pretty much. And then he's kind of vowed that he would be the best number nine hitter in baseball. And he's doing exactly that. I mean, he's been great at the plate. I know he didn't have any hits yesterday, but for the most part, he's been very good about moving the line along, um, turning the lineup over. And so... Yeah, he's definitely in the like upper tier of fan favorites at the moment. So you had a piece go up at The Athletic last night off af, off the game. Kevin Kiermaier makes sensational catch and Blue Jays win. It's just elite. Uh, talk to Kevin Gosman about having that defense behind him. Talk to John Schneider about it. Talk to Kiermaier himself. Um, and it wasn't, obviously the one catch was unbelievable, but he had another really good one. He almost got mm-hmm. that Rowdy Telez. Uh, it ended up being a triple, but he almost got to that one as well. Can you... Like, obviously, after a game, it's easy to to look back at, at that catch with hindsight. But can you 
get a sense talking to Jay's pitchers over the course of the year that that having Kiermaier and then to another degree Springer and right and Varsho and left like has this done something for some Blue Jays pitchers in terms of their confidence when, when balls go out into the outfield? I think so. I mean, Kevin Kiermaier has talked about it all year. I mean, all the outfielders have. It's kind of been um, this running message since spring training. It was like, don't be afraid to, you know, attack the zone. And if the ball's put in play, we're going to make the play behind you. And it's certainly been that way for the outfielders. And, you know, the, the infield defense, while it has had some wobbles, um, it's been really good as well. I mean, it's it's one of those things where sometimes the eye test doesn't always match up with the stats, and the Blue Jays' defensive stats are really good. They're basically the best defensive team um, in baseball. A lot of that is Kiermaier leading the way, Matt Chapman as well. Um, always brings like a steady stream of elite defense, even if he's a touchdown from you know his top top elite level. Um, but I think that yeah, like in terms of the outfield specifically, yeah, I think that the pitchers have talked about it enough that I do think they are growing more and more comfortable and almost to a point where they feel spoiled. Like they know that so many of those balls um, are going to land in the glove and, and it's not just Kiermaier. I mean, I think that having Kiermaier help maybe position George Springer in a different way too, where, you know, Kiermaier can cover so much ground that you can have George playing in a little bit more. And so he can kind of make those diving grabs too, going forward because he's not playing as deep sometimes and then Varsho obviously is really good in left field and he can play center as well and so it's I think the outfield well sometimes it's you know you have those sensational catches and and that's when it really stands out but I think on a daily basis they're making um good and routine and spectacular uh catches throughout all the games so, Caitlin, there are some defensive metrics we can look at. And my obviously people know that I'm a, a numbers friendly guy and I like some of the analytics and stuff. One of the things I don't really care for at all is like catch probability and stuff like that. Like all I all I need to measure a really good catch is if I thought it was cool or if I like got up out of my seat. Um, however, when you obviously I can't watch every single catch all around baseball. So we can use some of these numbers to compare across different defenses. And if we use defensive run saved, which is, you know, usually one of the stronger defensive metrics when it's still this early. Um, yes, I know not early for standings and stuff like that, but for stats, it's a little early. Um, the blue Jays have with their outfield defense saved an estimated 21 runs this year. No other team has more than 10. Does that feel too extreme to you? Like, like obviously this defense is good. They have quote unquote three center fielders in the outfield, but to be doubling up on the next best defense, that feels like out of control wild, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I've been kind of, I get those daily emails um, from sports info solution on defensive run saves every day. And so I'm, I'm constantly looking at it and Fancy you. Yeah, well, um, and I I remember, like, looking early on and kind of being surprised, like, oh, wow, the Blue Jays are already up top, and, yeah, they're kind of leading the way, and every day they just kind of continue to accumulate um, more defensive run saves. And so it it does seem extreme, but I don't know. Like, that's what the numbers say, and and maybe it is somewhat the way that, especially I would say Varsho and Kiermaier can make um, sort of difficult catches look a bit more routine um, just with their speed and their jumps. I know, or, and George Springer as well. Um, Like I just, I I guess we're just more used to him. Um, But I think those, those two being new 
Um, I do think their jumps are really good. And maybe that's something that for the eye test and just for me in general, like I can't really measure it, but maybe the, the numbers and the data are saying that that's really contributing to some of the, these catches that they're making and the, the runs that they're saving. Um, I think in terms of that number, would you say 21? I think Kiermaier is probably responsible for about half of that. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, he has made some really great catches and, um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like unless they completely fall apart, um, and another team goes on a tear of, um, defense, defense in the outfield, it feels like the Blue Jays are just going to end up being the best outfield in, in baseball. And I think that's something that we all kind of thought uh, on paper they could be at the start of the year. And you had a piece. Uh, yeah. And you're right, by the way, Kevin Kiermaier leads the league by far in defensive run safety as 12 Wander Franco's next with nine. Uh, and again, I mentioned the Dodgers outfield as a whole is in second and has 10 defensive runs saved. Uh, and Kevin Kiermaier has 12. So he's been, uh, he's been pretty good out there. Um, so defense is a big part of, like you said, we, we heard about this coming into the season. We heard about base running. We heard about the little things and in your piece um, from the first win of this series on Tuesday, you had talked to John Schneider about, uh, and the quote he used was, it's a perfect example of doing things that we're good at. And it seemed like, you know, from reading your piece, and I know that piece was as much about Brandon Belt's turnaround as anything, but over this four and two stretch, I know the offense hasn't been unbelievable, but are you starting to see the, the Jays turn the corner in terms of some of the, hey, get back to what we were supposed to be elements that were so lacking during that, that last homestand? Yeah, I think they just they just kind of look a lot like calmer. Uh, I mean, it feel it felt like when they weren't playing well, um, they were just kind of like frantic, and some of that was just on the base pass, uh, especially it was noticeable. But just kind of these like uh, lapses um, and just kind of looking like they just aren't completely there, or whatever. It was just a strange sight, and and I think I guess the best I can say it is like I didn't. I almost like it was just so calm. Like you almost like they were just didn't notice them trying to do too much or anything. Everyone was just doing their job, I guess. Like it was almost like these games were kind of boring and unremarkable, but that was kind of a good thing because it just like just smoothly went along. There wasn't these like weird plays. We were like, what are they doing out there? It was just like, everyone was just kind of doing what they were supposed to running when they were supposed to and all this kind of stuff. And so, I mean, sometimes like winning baseball is boring because <laughs> there's, you know, there's not mistakes. There's not these um, crazy plays. I mean, there can be good, crazy plays. Like you said, those catches, but um, there's not those, things that you're rolling your eyes over or saying like what just happened where you're like relying on the replay to sort of figure out what even just happened so I I found that they were just playing very um smoothly um and while it was you know a little boring I think that's probably a welcome dose after some of their kind of crazier um series you know remember against the Yankees and the Orioles and all that and even Tampa um so yeah I don't know I think they look a lot better they looked more like they were playing in April which I remember thinking in April like oh there's not you know not like a ton to write about they're just playing really good baseball right now 
Yeah, and look, one of the things that could – you can play good baseball and it's still entertaining baseball. One of the ways that you could do that is to have one of your best hitters find a bit of a hot streak. Now, I know in writing about Alec Manoa's struggles the other day, you kind of went through some of the other Blue Jays who haven't quite lived up to expectations just yet for, for varying reasons. Now, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had – Three hits. He used all three fields uh, in the first game of that series. Only one hit over the other two games. But as Chris Black points out and texting to make sure we get it in here, uh, Vlad has eight hard hit balls over those last three games. Shohei, the only other player who who's had that many in a, in a short span. And Vlad hasn't had four in a game uh, since opening day. He just missed Two yesterday. I know you tweeted about it, and I'm sure you you talked to John Schneider about it after the game as well. Um, do you think we're getting close to, to Vlad turning things around here at the plate? I think so. And this was a good week for him. Um, obviously, it's, it's been well reported that his uncle was in Toronto this week. Obviously, his uncle Wilton, who has coached him since he was six years old, and you know knows his swing better than anybody probably. And so uh, he was working with him before the games this week and the results, um, well, sort of mixed so far, the process looks like it's there. Um, the hard hit balls, like you said, they were obvious. There was several yesterday and then the night day before as well, um, warning track balls. And it looks like he's so close. Like he's really just missing. looks like the swing is there and the balls are getting in the air, which I think is the first good sign. And then it's really just probably a matter of like split second of timing for him to be exactly on. Um, you know, it's it's so strange that we're still waiting for the first home run. Like I realize it's such a anomaly right now, especially with a guy like Vlad. But it does feel like, and John Schneider said this a couple of days ago, and it's kind of it is true with Vlad. Is it probably is just going to take like one home run or, you know, one loud double or whatever it's going to be. Um, and then he's just going to start going on a tear. And he really looked good in April. Like, I, I keep going back to that. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought in the first week, that first um, road trip, like, he was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And it really reminded me of how he played in 2021. He was, he was taking a ton of walks. He was hitting the ball hard. He was, And it, it feels like he's getting close to that. Now, there's still a little bit of wild swings right now um but i do think like the hard hit balls are a really good sign and and how close he looks it probably is just a matter of of days here and i think once it happens it'll probably go off fairly quickly so the jays lineup you know george springer has started I mean, it's been a little bit now. I shouldn't say start. It's been a couple of weeks of George Springer hitting a little bit better or at least getting balls to, to drop in a little bit more. Bo Bichette has been arguably the best hitter in baseball so far. If you like non-elite home run hitter territory, he's not going to match home runs with Aaron Judge and Pete Alonso, but he's been pretty up there for just about every non-home run hitting category. If Vlad can start to turn things around, Brandon Belt, as you wrote about this week, has turned things around. Matt Chapman had the best April in baseball and one of the worst Mays. I don't like, I don't want to do, I don't want to be too silly about arbitrary endpoints, but the fact that he had a really good game on June 1st, like, do you think that can help a guy put like, Hey, May was a bad month. Let's turn the page. Um, Maybe Chapman's not the right guy to ask this about since he seems so very like serious and level headed. But do you think things like that can help of like, Hey, this is the start of a new month. It's the start of a a new stretch of baseball. 
get off to a good start on June 1st, June 2nd, and kind of roll with it from there? Like, can, can that help a guy like Chapman coming off a rough month? Yeah, I mean, he was actually kind of asked about it, and he basically said, like, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, yes, I, it, the month is changing, and I think as a whole, the Blue Jays want to say goodbye to May. And knowing Chapman, the thing with Chapman is, like, he doesn't totally – mind necessarily if he goes over four if the team is winning and playing really well obviously he wants to get hits and contribute to wins but he's a very like team first winning is what matters if he can play if he makes a defensive play and goes over four he'll feel good about his game um so i think what was probably more frustrating for him in his may um was not just his own personal performance but the fact that that kind of dip in his performance also coincided with the Blue Jays playing like their worst baseball of the year so far. And so I think that was probably compounding it. And so I think him individually and the team as a whole are happy to see the calendar flip. Uh, I think that it can mean something. I mean, baseball so you know, so um, such an everyday sport that I think sometimes you lose track. You're like, wait, it's June 1st. I mean, I know I feel that sometimes. So, um, you know, whether players are always totally aware that the calendar is flipping, uh, maybe is another matter. But I do think that um, it helps. Uh, and, and it is kind of funny that, you know, he had the home run. He has a great game on June 1st. So maybe this is maybe this is the start of a better month for him and the Blue Jays as a whole. Also a uh, start of not even just a, a better month, a, a better Blue Jays tenure, a better role ahead. Um, Caitlin, you, you had to know at some point I was either going to ask about this player or just write about him myself. Uh, Tyler Heineman's big day yesterday. He has a double. He throws a runner out. He calls a good game for Gosman behind the plate. I know he's not actually going to factor in much, but you know the affinity I have for for third string catchers. Um, the the boost that a day like that from a, a guy who's not playing a lot gives a, gives a clubhouse. Could you feel that yesterday? I know Heineman's a guy a, a lot of the guys in that room like. Yeah, and Kevin Gosman was um, had a lot of praise for him after the game as well, just kind of getting on the page so quickly. Obviously, there's a little bit of history with Heinemann. He spent some, some time with the Blue Jays last year, and he, so he knows the guys. He knows the team. He knows how they prepare. I think Danny Jansen spent some time with him as well, just kind of prepping him for catching Gosman. You know, Gosman, um, you know, both – sort of a challenge to catch in the sense that he does throw a lot of balls in the dirt. You got to block the splitter and, and that kind of thing. But I mean, the game planning Gosling kind of knows what he's doing out there and there's not that, you know, you only have really two, three pitches to um, be calling. So in that way, not easy, but you know, it's not as many pitches uh, or it's not as much to track as a guy like Bassett. Um, and so, yeah, Heineman, I think is, you know, seamlessly fitting in um, very well. I'm sure everyone's glad to have him back. I haven't been able to ask him about any new magic tricks. I don't mm. know if you guys know, but yes, oh, he's on, yeah, he's a magician. Caleb um, Joseph filled us in, in such fine detail about Tyler <laughs> Heineman's magic. Oh yeah. I've seen, I've seen him do a few tricks. Um, and that was last year though. So I haven't been able to like catch up with him yet and, you know, ask him if he's learned any new tricks, you know, over the off season or whatever, but, um, that's always fun. And, and I know Kevin Goslin also said like he was, he was so amped up to catch yesterday. I mean, it was a beautiful day in Toronto. 
I think it was probably, yeah, it must have been his first start back in actual Toronto since he's returned to the team. Um, it was a great, it was a great day. And I think Tyler Heineman's just so excited to, to be with his team for, you know, it probably will be a bit of a shorter stint because Danny Jansen is probably not too, too far away from coming back. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always nice when those guys contribute as well. Certainly is. And like we've talked about a bunch before, you know that, I don't know, maybe I get him on the show when he goes back to AAA. And that's, that's the new version of me writing about every third string catcher that comes up because I'm not doing a lot of writing these days. Caitlin, uh, Jays start a three set against the, the Mets today. Uh, that's Chris Bassett's former team. I know I got to let you go here, but uh, Chris Bassett coming off of a couple of pretty rough starts here, uh, 380 ERA, but some of the underlying indicators aren't that great, especially when you look at, you know, strikeout rates down, his walk rates up, uh, the ground ball rates down. What are you seeing from Bassett these last two starts? And is there, you know, does this reach the concern index for you at all? Or is this too off the radar for only with only two bad starts? Yeah, I mean, I think he was just so, so good for such a long stretch there with the um, scoreless um, outings and all that kind of stuff that it's not too worrying. I think that, the Tampa start was a weird one, um, and and then the next start, another kind of weird one. I think this is just probably the nature of how it goes with starters sometimes. I mean, he was elite, elite, elite for several starts there, and there's some been some natural dips, but I'm not too concerned. He's just such a kind of pro veteran that I think he kind of knows what he needs to do to adjust. It'll be interesting to watch him face his former team. You always kind of wonder is it advantage pitcher in those hmm. situations, advantage hitter in those situations? You know, I know him having a number of pitches that he has probably gives him a bit of a leg up because it's just so hard to know what he's going to be doing. I'm sure he'll be amped up to, to face his, his um, former team as well and be back in New York, which is always, you know, a fun time um, to be playing in front of that crowd. So I'm excited to watch him. I'm sure that he's been working between starts and trying to figure out what he needs to do to, to get back. And I assume he'll be back with Kirk this time, which uh, I know we just praised Heineman, but obviously um, with Kirk, he's had a great relationship. So maybe that would be a, a nice way to sort of reset him as well. That's great. Uh, I hope you're right, Caitlin, and I hope you have a terrific weekend back here in Toronto. And it's not, you know, obviously I want to read your stuff, but it's supposed to be a nice weekend here. You're not on the road for this three-game trip. Uh, Get some Caitlin time in. (laughs) I will try. All right, Caitlin, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic. Again, you can go read her stuff from last night on Kevin Kiermaier's big game and how that's kind of lifted uh, the clubhouse and the pitching staff. Some great stuff throughout the week as well uh, on Alec Manoa's struggles, on Brandon Belt's turnaround. You can check all of that out at Caitlin's page at The Athletic or, or the Blue Jays page at The Athletic. We did mention Jays and Mets set it up. Three-game set in New York tonight. Chris Bassett against Justin Verlander. Jose Barrios against giant starter Tyler McGill and Yusei Kikuchi against Kodai Senga on Sunday. We think the Mets have not started Kodai Senga on traditional MLB rest very much. Uh, Sunday would be a start for him on traditional rest, but the last word was that's the plan right now. So we'll see. We'll talk to Bobby Wagner about that a little bit later. Uh, We'll talk to Hannah Kaiser too, but before tonight's Mets Jays game, that game's at seven ten. um, it is Lou Gehrig Day around baseball. So down at City Field, uh, the Mets are hosting Lou Gehrig Day. Sarah Langs is going to be a part of a pregame ceremony. Uh, Sarah is a frequent guest on, on Jay's Talk Plus. She was diagnosed with ALS uh, a while back and announced that 
uh, just ahead of the postseason last year. Uh, the Amazing Mets Foundation will present Project ALS with a grant for research in Langs's honor before the game. We'll get into some of what's going to happen tonight, some of why and how Sarah's become one of the most beloved people all around baseball. And yeah, we're going to get into some stats stuff. We're going to see what our old pals, the hottest team in baseball, the Arizona Diamondbacks are doing. Um, and we'll we'll get into a little bit of Vlad stuff as well. Uh, look at some of this hard hit stuff. Sarah knows Vlad from way back when she was going to a New Hampshire Fisher Cats game. So we'll get into all that with Sarah Langs of MLB next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays and Mets down at City Field tonight. 7-10 first pitch. Before that first pitch, though, our next guest will be part of a pregame ceremony. Uh, the Amazing Mets Foundation will present Project ALS with a $10,000 grant for research in honor of Sarah Langs of MLB.com, of everywhere in baseball media, of fist bumps for ALS, where you've raised almost $30,000 so far. Sarah Langs, uh, so great to have you back on. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about baseball and character and everything, I just have to say because I know my father is listening or he will listen when it comes to the podcast. Paperback writer, amazing intro song. So I love that. I I remember, I think it was during the World Baseball Classic, someone from Great Britain used it and uh, you tweeted about it. So I, yes. I tucked it away. Um so we are going to talk about baseball, but I do want to talk a little bit about you because today is Lou Gehrig Day around baseball. Um, you have been so open and sharing with your own story uh, through your your ALS diagnosis and everything that you've been going through. Today has kind of also become Sarah Lang's day uh, around baseball. And I know your your best friend, Mandy Bell, wrote a terrific, very heartfelt piece at MLB.com today. And Buster Olney is going to have something at ESPN this afternoon. Um, how... How does today feel, the, the outpouring of support and love you've received so far today? Oh, my gosh. I mean, thank you. It is totally disorienting and overwhelming. But as I've said, I'm not great at being the center of attention like this. But if it gets people to be more aware of ALS, if it drives more money for research and Simply awareness absolutely will drive more money toward the cause, and I am glad to uh, be part of that, and I am so honored. You know, I've said that it feels like this is the third Luke Eric day, and it does feel like each year it has gained more momentum, and this year people are tweeting about it, talking about it, asking me about it. Uh, even the beginning of the week, so it was almost like Luke Eric day week, and that is absolutely amazing to see. And hopefully this all, I mean, I know it will really make a difference down the road. And beyond just the, the ALS diagnosis, um, I, I remember you saying in the past, and I know Mandy wrote about this a little bit, you've kind of always felt a, a connection to Lou Gehrig, to, right down to being born May 2nd, your fellow Taurus, um, at the same day that his Ironman streak ended. Um what of what about that element resonates with with you today? The being able to you know share that day with him and now kind of share the story with him. 
Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's just this really eerie thing that I remember discovering, actually, before I got this diagnosis. I was working on a story for the first Luger Day back in 2021, and I was looking at different streaks that happened after his, and I was going by the day that each streak ended. And the first day on that was that May 2nd. And I remember just kind of filing that away as, you know, what an amazing thing to feel a connection to a Hall of Famer like that. And then, of course, the um, getting the diagnosis, realizing that connection. I mean, there are so many others I've gone through that I've noticed. I mean, I've read uh, John's and Ike's book. Uh, luckiest man, which I highly, highly recommend. And it turns out that his wife uh, was raised on the south side of Chicago where I went to school. She grew up about two blocks from one of the dorms I lived in at one point, And their first date was actually to a hotel that later became the precursor for the dorm I lived in. So just all of these really weird things. And I've always had a uh, penchant for noticing these kinds of things, which, of course, works really well with the job. But it's certainly odd to feel that connection, but I'm honored to feel it. Um, so I, I have an idea. I know you said you don't like to be the, the center of attention necessarily. And today is, you know, it's, it's Lou Gehrig Day around baseball. But I, I had an idea for... May 2nd in the future, and, and I want to see if you agree with it. I, I think May 2nd for your birthday should be, that's the day that every ballpark has to let dogs in for that day. How do you feel about that? Oh, my gosh. I'm so all in. I love Park at the Park. You know, there was this great video that uh, the folks at MLB Network and Mandy Bell and Matt Myers put together that went up today where a bunch of my colleagues and friends said why baseball is the best. And Andy Rogers, who covers the world for us for MLB.com, and Doug Gospel is one of the directors of our social department, both said baseball is the best when it's Park at the Park. And I was just sitting here watching that and through tears being like, yes, yes. So I love when those happen feels like they're even more prevalent every single like, season. There's some teams, I think they do it every Tuesday home game. So all in, let's make May 2nd Park at the Park night. Mm. Nationally, I love it. Um, you mentioned the, the video up at MLB.com of so many people around baseball sharing why they think baseball is the best. I'm, I've got my RotoWear shirt on, the baseball is the best NALS shirt. People can go and uh, check that out as well. We're talking to Sarah Langs of MLB and, and MLB.com, and you'll see all around baseball today um, people sharing uh, their stories with, with family members and, and friends with ALS and, and, of course, supporting Sarah. There's also the fist bumps for ALS where, Sarah, you've raised almost $30,000 through that. Um, and tonight, the New York Mets are going to do a, a pregame ceremony that you'll be involved in. I, I know you just shared that you went to school in Chicago, but you grew up being going to a, a lot of Mets games. The fact that the timing of all of this has worked out and, and it's going to be a Mets game that you're a part of, how special is tonight going to be? It's incredibly special. I mean, as you said, 
I grew up a Mets fan, even though I'm objective now. Obviously, I will always remember that going to Shea Stadium is really how I fell in love with baseball and watching Mets games on TV before it was even SMY. Watching Mets games on TV when I had to check the newspaper to see what channel they were on that night. So for it to be the Mets, as you said, for that to be the game in New York on June 2nd, it's really, really meaningful, and I'm just so grateful to them and to the entire baseball community. I mean, I, I really can't process any of this, and so I'm kind of just in a daze, but it's all in a good way. Yeah, it does. It's That's great. And we'll pivot to baseball in just one second. One more thing that, that's happening today is that every broadcast booth around baseball will also hang uh, a Lang star. So ALS, a Lang star uh, outside uh, of the broadcast booth. And you can purchase those as well. 100% of the profits from a Lang star go to Project ALS. You can check that out at starsforsarah.org. Um, there's also going to be Bats auctioned off. You you got to pick one player from every team to sign a bat that will get auctioned off. And I'm curious, you chose Dalton Varsho from the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, I know you have a bit of a, a history, you know, watching Vlad and Bo and those guys down when they were with the Fisher Cats and stuff. Uh, why Dalton Varsho for you for the bat signing? You know, I went through and I went through every team and I was sort of, you know, Whenever you're making a list of 30 players, you're going to sort of go with what you know off the top of your head first. So I went to the players who I knew had a direct connection to ALS, uh, Aaron and Austin Nola, and of course uh, Chris Sale, and others, uh, Tommy Nance. And then I actually sent out an email to all of our B-writers at MLB.com and asked them if they knew any direct connections to ALS for any players on their team, for any players they covered, because first and foremost, I wanted to be sure that those players um, had the chance to do this because I knew how meaningful it would be to them. And Steve Gilbert, who covers the Diamondbacks for us, and of course used to cover Dalton Marshall, let me know that his mother had actually passed away of ALS at some point, and maybe that hasn't been talked about as much. And I hope it's okay that I showed that they knew he had a personal connection, and so that's why I chose him. That's a, an unbelievable reason to choose that, and I'm glad that he gets to be uh, a part of that with you today. Sarah, let, let's pivot uh, to baseball talk. So um, you mentioned the Diamondbacks. I know they are the hottest and most fun team in baseball. What are you liking with our old pals, Lourdes Gurriel uh, and Gabrielle Moreno from here in Toronto? Uh, I know you, you've got D-backs fever right now. Oh, my gosh. They are so much fun to watch. As you said, Lourdes Gurriel had an amazing name. You look at where he was on the leaderboard, WRC+, plus, OPS, batting average, any stat that you want. Um, he was towards the top, top five, top six in baseball, and all of that he really put it all together in that month. And this is a team that can pitch. We know what Zach Allen can do, of course. And they are currently 
time for the best record, not just, oh, they're leaving the NLS co-leading with the Dodgers. They're tied for the best record in the National League right now. They've only done that at least this deep into a season in four other seasons, back in 07, 02, 2001, and 1999. And back in 2007, they actually led the National League in record and win percentage for the entire year. Now, I don't know if they'll do that for the rest of the year. The Dodgers are really good. The Braves are really good. But this is a team we have to take seriously, and especially with the starts with the Padres. And the Phillies have, and the Mets have gone off to in terms of maybe not being as dominant as we expected. The Diamondbacks are here, and they are not just here to be a third wild card. Yeah, they're, and they're so much fun. And the years you mentioned, it's always fun. Anytime there's a team stat where you have to go back and like think of Randy Johnson or something like that, and it's like, oh, that's a that's a throwback the last time this team was, mm-hmm. was this good uh, and this relevant. So, you mentioned they're tied atop the NL West. They're tied atop the National League. They would, as it turns out, be third in the American League East. And I know that, Sarah, you've kind of been on top of the this story that's developing that this American League East division could be the greatest division in the history of the divisional era. Uh, what do the numbers look like right now for just how dominant the American League East has been versus the rest of the league? Oh, my goodness. I mean... If you just look at the standings, as you said, the one thing that pops out immediately is the fact that all of those teams are above 500. We've never had a division finish with every team above 500. The closest any division caught was back in 2005. The NLEs had every team above 500 entering the final day of the season, and then the Nationals lost to fall to 81-81, so it was 500 and above. And, you know, we got a taste of this back in June last year when the Orioles really started playing well. We saw that that uh, division had an incredible month that month. Uh, they said at the time, a record for the best winning percentage by any five-team division in a single month. And then the ALEs broke that back in April. So what they're doing, the way they're doing it, is by winning outside the division. You could say that's a product of the new schedule, but this is what's here. So just for uh, those who might not process the math immediately, when you play a game in your division, that's an automatic 500 for the ALAs, right? There's one win and one loss within the ALAs. So the way the division really gets to having a, you know, 591, 587, what have you type of winning percentage total is by winning games outside the division. And they're on pace for not just the best winning percentage by any division in the year, but also hand-in-hand, the best winning percentage outside the division for any division in the single year. 
That is wild. And like, obviously we know the AL East is very, very good and very, very competitive. But when you lay out the context like that, um, it's pretty remarkable. One thing that, you know, the Jays haven't carried their weight entirely in, you know, making sure that they're one of the very good teams as well. And, you know, they certainly haven't done well against the American League East, but 24 and 12 outside of the division. Sarah, I think one thing that could really help with the Blue Jays, and it would certainly put the Blue Jays back on the radar with a Diamondbacks-like team in terms of, hey, who are the fun teams to watch in baseball, would be Vladimir Guerrero Jr., turning things around a little bit and, and heating up. And, and I know Sarah, you tweet out the stack cast leaderboards most nights and Vlad is on there an awful lot for well hit balls and exit velocities and all of that stuff. Um, you've watched Vlad for a long time. Are you pretty confident we're going to get the, the more power hitting version of Vlad back sometime soon here? Absolutely. I mean, I hesitate to say that it's just that luck. But certainly, if you look at the underlying stats, he's already having that season. So right now, he's hitting 285, slugging 453. I know Jays fans would like to see those numbers be higher, and all baseball fans would. But his expected batting average is 302. His expected slugging percentage is 556. Those are based on the quality of contact, and it's amazing because when I look at the StatCast page, he has 98 percent column hard hit rate, 96 in expected batting average, 90 percent expected slug, 87 in barrel rate, 82nd in strikeout rate. Ooh. That's fun. That's what we come to expect from him. And I know the game is played on the field, not in the stat chain. But I think what this tells you is that here, two months into the season, he's doing a lot of things right. And you have to imagine that that will start to show with the actual results at some point soon as well. It would be much more concerning if we're looking at this and seeing a bunch of blue and what have you. I mean, the biggest thing for me is that his ground ball rate right now would be a career low. We have talked about this. You and I have talked about this. Toronto as an entire city. Canada (laughs) as a country has talked about this. He crushes the ball, just hit it into the ground a little bit less. He's doing that right now. Uh, well, hopefully you get a, a Vlad home run tonight then maybe. I, I don't know. You you said you're object. Maybe we'll just get Vlad and Pete Alonso going back and forth uh, with home runs tonight. Sarah, I'm, I'm so excited for you uh, for tonight, for the pregame ceremony with the Amazing Mets Foundation and Project ALS with stars for Sarah all around every broadcast booth in baseball tonight, MLB.com, Buster only on ESPN. Uh, I have MLB network on in the studio right now. And Mandy Bell's video um, about you is on off to my right here. Um, Can't say enough how, I mean, you know this from all the outpouring, but how much everyone around baseball loves you, how much we here in Toronto appreciate all the work you do on the stats side and making all that stuff accessible and fun for everyone um, and how open and sharing and strong you've been through everything. Thank you so much, and I hope tonight is just incredible for you, Sarah. Thank you so much for all those kind words, for having me on, for all the support, and just for everything. And hey, the great part about being objective is that I want everyone to their own runs. <laughs> and you know, it is hot here today in New York, so 
I mean, I apologize to Verlander and Bassett, but maybe hard to keep the ball in the ballpark tonight. Well, I, I hope you're right, and I hope someone fishes one of those <laughs> balls out for you too, Sarah. Uh, thank you so much, and have a blast tonight. Thank you. Have a good one. That was Sarah Langs uh, of MLB, MLB Network, MLB.com. Uh, just going to run through some of the, the things we mentioned throughout that segment uh, as well. So um, Sarah does live with ALS. Um, she has spun that and used that to make positive change and raise awareness and lift people up around her. And there's no shortage of ways you can get involved or, or learn more about Sarah and ALS today. Um, the Jays and Mets will have that pregame ceremony where the Amazing Mets Foundation will present Project ALS with a $10,000 grant for research in honor of Sarah. Uh, you could go to starsforsarah.org and, and purchase a Lang Star ALS. 100% of the profits go to Project ALS and you'll see those hanging outside of every broadcast booth around baseball this weekend. Um, you can also check Sarah out at S Langs on sports uh, on Twitter and she'll be retweeting it and sharing all of those things as well. Her best friend Mandy Bell has an incredible piece up at MLB.com both a written version and a video version there are tribute videos from people around baseball sharing why they think baseball is the best which has kind of become Sarah's catchphrase on Twitter uh, you can check that out. Buster Only will have uh, a feature about Sarah on ESPN this afternoon as well. Um, one thing I didn't get to bring up with Sarah, she's also, she won the, um, so the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America, gives out a, a Casey Stengel award every year. It's the, and Casey Stengel's fam famous quote to reporters of, you could look it up. Um, so it's the, you could look it up award. And she won that um, a little bit ago because a huge part of, you know, even before we knew Sarah was living with ALS, the passion and enthusiasm with which she makes, I mean, just about baseball in general, but one of the leading voices in making the statsier stuff more fun, more accessible, more relevant to the everyday Twitter user, the everyday baseball fan, the everyday broadcast. Um, it's incredible the work that Sarah has done and the strength she's shown through all this. So, so strongly encourage you to check uh, any of those resources out, startsforsarah.org. Uh, look up Project ALS and follow Sarah at S Langs on sports on Twitter. We're going to take a break. We'll set this series up with the Mets perspective from Bobby Wagner of Tip and Pitches, uh, the, the podcast, uh, in a minute here. And then uh, we'll talk to Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports and MLB Now and the Bandwagon Podcast in the second hour of Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's and Mets tonight. First of three down at City Field. Uh, we just talked to Sarah Langs, so who will be part of a pregame ceremony. Sarah also passed along the update that she had mentioned that Dalton Varsha was her selection from the Toronto Blue Jays uh, to sign a bat that'll be auctioned off. A, a player from every team in baseball is going to be a part of that. Um, Sarah just texted along the update that Dalton Varsha's connection, it's his uh, wife's mother who passed away uh, from ALS. So thanks again to, Sh to Sarah for coming on and, and sharing all of that with us. It's uh, admittedly... Uh, Little bit of a, a pivot here after talking to to Sarah about some heavier stuff, but also some very fun baseball stuff. Uh, let's get to know the New York Mets a little bit more. It's Bobby Wagner of the Tipping Pitches podcast. You can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. You can check them out on Patreon. Bobby Wagner, you 
as a podcast at Tip and Pitches, you guys have seen Paramore together now. There is no nothing else for the podcast to accomplish. You've done it. Congratulations. That's right, Blake. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we made our bones about unionizing the minor leagues. That happened. We've talked a lot about seeing Taylor Swift. That happened. And we've made a lot of jokes about seeing Paramore. So that's finally happened. So that's kind of like the, uh, the trifecta for yeah. where we go from here, but we're going to figure it out. Yeah. The one thing I would ask is you got to stop bringing Steve Sladkowski of pup on because he, by, by platforming him about baseball, he then thinks that I have to listen to his baseball takes as well. So if you guys could just cut that part out, I'd appreciate it. Listen, man, he's giving us a lot of entertainment, you know, in the music world, putting on a great show. We just need to give him the the outlet to talk Jace from time to time. Of course. And, you know, Popper out there supporting the, the WGA. And we, of course, appreciate solidarity across all unions, as you guys, again, have been kind of at the forefront covering and talking about the minor league baseball unionization. We're, we're going to talk Mats and we're going to talk Jays. But while we're on kind of what tipping pitches is, and it's a baseball podcast, but it leans, you know, for the fan and for, you know, pro a pro labor bent, certainly. Um, you guys have been talking a lot and tweeting a lot about this situation where Valley Sports and a couple of the regional sports networks are just going to kind of not pay baseball teams anymore. And we're going to, yeah. uh, we're headed into, you know, not here in Toronto because we at Rogers own the team and there's no risk of any of this. Um, but for a lot of teams in a lot of sports, we're headed toward a, a new kind of environment in terms of how fans are able to get their games that we've seen some teams like the Phoenix suns be like, you know what? We'll eat it to develop long-term fans and we'll put it on free television. And if we don't get rights fees for that, whatever, what we're seeing major league baseball do with the San Diego Padres is, well, even if you already have MLB TV, you have to pay us again for a different MLB TV. Um, what right. is, what is your current, you know, just feeling about how this is playing out and where we might be headed next as like a baseball consuming fan group I, you know i think we're at a really interesting crossroads right now you know the the rsns are clearly you know coming to the end of their era of dominance um, whether that be just because of consumer changes or whether that be because of the financial structure of some of these companies and so i i mean i think what you're seeing is that mlb has a choice to make and that choice involves how accessible they want their product to be versus uh, how much money they want to make on their pro- their product in the short term. Um, and I think with certain teams, you know, like with the Padres this past week, um, we saw that they wanted to prioritize make- recuperating some of that money that they were uh, previously guaranteed through that RSN contract. They're going to be charging people in the San Diego area $20 a month, 20 to zero or 1999, I guess, if you're uh, willing to buy into that advertising uh, to watch their product and to, to stream it on MLB TV. Um, and that's a lot of money, you know, like I, I don't, I, I don't know if I would personally pay $20 a month just for access to that specific, um, just, you know, the one broadcast on MLB TV in addition to what you're already paying MLB TV. Um, And I think a lot of people are going to have to make that calculation. You know, it's more than a lot of other streaming services that people are probably getting more, um, you know, bang for their buck on. Um, But, you know, the the bankruptcy of these RSNs is really fascinating to us too because it removes kind of some of these, uh, you know, Byzantine archaic structures in terms of blackouts and, you know, what they're actually allowed to put on different services. And it, it blows all of that up. And so I think, you know, Rob has a decision, Rob Manfred has commissioner of baseball has a decision to make about what it's actually going to look like. And, you know, more interestingly for, you know, fans of baseball, who is going to pick up that bill? Who is going to put that bill, whether it's going to be major league baseball in, in terms of in the interest of growing the game or whether like in most other cases, it's going to be, 
um, the fans and consumers actually kind of uh, paying more out of pocket. I have uh, an inclination where Rob Manfred might lean, given everything else yeah, we you know and, about you him and, me both. and uh, how everything else is played out. The, the Padres one is also like the timing and them being kind of the first big swing one as they're having this very disappointing, underwhelming, underperforming season is, uh, is, uh, I don't know. It's a little too on the nose. Everything's going poorly. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us 80 bucks for the rest of the season to, to watch a team. You're probably very, very frustrated with right now. Um, a team that's also had some frustrations, Bobby is your New York Mets. So, um, you are New York based. The, the Mets are 30 and 27 second in the ALEs, but the expectations were, a lot higher. They spent a lot of money this off season. And some of this has been injury related, certainly, um, but they've been outscored on the whole. They have some guys underperforming uh, before we dig in on specifics, high level. How are you feeling about the Mets right now? I just think that this has been a really tough year so far for the team. And I know we're only, you know, we're still less than 60 games into the season. We've got a lot of time left to go. Um, certainly there were stretches last year. If I look back on it in retrospect, where, you know, they were playing middling baseball for a couple of weeks here and there. But in comparison to last year, 101 wins, you know, one of the best uh, teams in the history of the franchise. It all kind of went up in flames at the end, as we know. But everything felt like we were gliding a little bit last year. And this year it feels a little bit more like uphill sledding or charging through the mud. And, you know, I think a lot of Jays fans can probably relate to that. Uh, I think they have the same record as the Mets this year. Got there in kind of a different way. But, and, of course, different expectations. You know, Steve Cohen coming out saying it's, basically championship or bust every year. Um, I just think that this team is kind of really mismatched, you know, like I'm really excited about younger players coming up and Francisco Alvarez, the Mets top prospect, uh, Brett Beatty, the top, you know, infield prospect or baseman, you know, they've looked really good. They've looked promising. Um, it's fun to see fresh new faces and it's, uh, frankly adorable to see guys that are like four or five years younger than me, just like doing it on the big stage. But, um, I just think that it's like it's a weird roster with all of those injuries and all of these kind of guys who are on one or two year deals. So it is, you know, it's easy to look at some of those deals and we we obviously love Mark Canna. Uh, that's not the deal that, that we're going to pick at here. Um, but there are some that, you know, uh, of course, anytime an owner spends like that, it opens you up to to questioning of that. And it's, you know, it's, it's always important to remember, especially in a league that's not capped like baseball, not your money. We are, we're all for players getting paid and things like, like, I, I don't think any Mets fan is like, yeah, Steve Cohen should have saved his money. Um, however, are there any specific deals that you're, you're kind of looking at now and thinking, Ooh, that might've been uh, better spent elsewhere this off season? Not really. I mean, it's the age old, uh, you know, baseball fan responsibility to say that you wish you had a little bit more in the bullpen, but who can really plan for what happened to Edwin Diaz? That's a total freak, freak accident, you know? And I think that having him at the back end of that bullpen would really make you feel a lot better about interchanging some of these other guys um, in different spots. And I think, you know, I think Buck Showalter has done a pretty decent job with the bullpen this year. And I know a lot of fans have um, critiqued his bullpen usage over the years, but um, I think he's, he's done okay in a tough spot. I just, you know, it's it's really hard to judge them so far. Like, uh, mm -hmm. of course, I make jokes about Billy Eckler all the time because he's spending nearly $500 million to uh, build a 500 baseball team, which is what he did for a long time in Anaheim. Maybe not to the extent of, you know, $500 million, but it, it's hard to judge them when you've had the injuries to Scherzer and Verlander and they haven't really been able to get going in a rhythm. You know, they, they made the start uh, on the same day in the doubleheader last Sunday. And that was like just a really encouraging from a qualitative perspective, not even that they were both phenomenal or anything like that, but they were both really solid. And the Mets won both games of a double header that those two 40 year old pitchers started. But, um, you know, like 
having not had Verlander for a long stretch at the beginning of the season, and then Scherzer, of course, has had his own struggles, well, well, well documented by the national media, might I add. Um, you know, it's just like it, it's an incomplete. It's not quite like a pass or a fail. It's just an incomplete on my report card this year so far. That's And that's fine. Like the, the Braves haven't been able to really run away with the division. The NL is, uh, as Hannah Kaiser's coming on later, uh, called uh, something like a, it's a crowded field of mediocrity is the exact quote that she, <laughs> that she used. So the Mets haven't really lost uh, a lot of ground. And I want to ask you about, you know, there's not, there's never like a, a real silver lining to guys getting hurt and things like that. But you mentioned Francisco Alvarez, and there have been a couple other guys in Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos, who, who have gotten small opportunities that maybe we didn't think were going to be there for them. Um, let's start with Alvarez, because obviously he's a tremendously exciting catching prospect. He's up in the majors at just 21. Um, what have you seen from him? And like where, if we're going like temperature check on the, the Mets fan excitement level for a catching prospect who hits with this much power. Like how, how close is the Alvarez hype train to getting out of control? Uh, it's very close. It's <laughs> very close. I'm trying to reserve uh, judgment, but you know, there's like, there's a couple little things here and there. Um, you know, the organization maybe doesn't seem quite as sold as him on him as the fan base is, which is always kind of an awkward spot to be in. Um, you know, it makes you question whether or not you're getting a little bit too excited just from seeing the pop and the pure tools and whatnot and whether there are some things that still need to be refined. You know, when he got called up, th- this is still true, of course. Like, he's 21. He uh, He's only been in the majors for a few months. He got a couple opportunities last year, but really towards the end of the year when they just kind of needed him because of, you know, they needed more bodies to fill the lineup. But he never gets cheated on a swing. And that's exciting, but also that means he sees less than four pitches per plate appearance. And that's, you know, that's not the best thing for a young hitter, you know, in the modern sabermetric era, you know, you, you like to take your walks and that kind of raises your floor. So it's a little bit scary in that respect, but what has been encouraging is both, I think he's actually pretty good defensively. I don't know how much the numbers bear that out, but I think he's um, smart and athletic. And I think he's learning really quickly. His learning curve is very sharp. Um, so defensively, I've been actually encouraged. And then on offense, you know, like if he could just take doubles the other way, and I hate to sound like Alex Rodriguez on your, on your mm-hmm. wonderful baseball radio show, but he has so much pop in his bat that if he just even gets any part of the barrel on the ball, it's going to travel a long way. And, um, that, you know, I can't even remember before Francisco Alvarez, the last time I saw Mets catcher hit an opposite field home run. I, I truly can't remember that. <laughs> And he's already done it multiple times in his big league career. And it's just, it's just a different level. Like you watch him for three or four games in a row. Uh, it's not just one game because you might see him strike out a few times and look pretty bad in, a, in, in at bats. But if you watch him for a few games in a row, you can kind of see that this dude has the juice. Yeah, I, I don't remember Tomas Nito doing that at, at all at any point. Um, to your point about his defense, you know, I, I know defensive runs saved liked him, likes him, and some of the stat cast numbers say, hey, as a blocker, as a framer, this guy has the goods. One area that he's really struggled, though, and this is if you just look at the base numbers or if you look at some of the, the stat cast attempts to quantify this better, um, you can really run on the New York Mets. And I know some of that, we, we share the blame, right? Like it's not just the catcher. It's also the pitcher. Um, the Jays have been not crazy aggressive running the bases, but moderately so certainly more than we're used to seeing uh, from this franchise the last couple of years. Would you expect a team like the Jays that has some decent speed, not elite, but de- like like high middle of the pack speed to, to really test Alvarez's arm this weekend? I think they will. You know, I think they'll have a tough time testing it 
against a guy like Verlander, who mm-hmm. is who is a veteran and seems to be um, adapting to the pitch clock a little bit better than um, his co forty year old running mate Max Scherzer, who <laughs> just went on an awesome tirade. I love I love a Scherzer tirade against the pitch clock yesterday. Uh, I do think they'll run on McGill. Uh, he does not hold runners very well. Um, so it kind of just depends situationally how many how many runners the Jays get to first base versus whether they're just kind of teeing off on McGill. You kind of have two versions of Tyler McGill this year. Good stuff, but, you know, in the aggregate, not having a great year so far. So I guess we'll see. I think they can probably run on him, you know, the third day of the series. Uh, it, it might be a Senga game. It might be a bullpen game. They, they kind of haven't announced that yet. So um, I, th- I do think that they'll be able to run a little bit in those second two games, but um, I, I trust Verlander to hold runners. He's he's a, he's a pro. In terms of uh, where Verlander's at in general, so he's made five starts. Obviously, he got the late start to the season. It looked like he'd been pretty good out of the gate, but he also, it's at Colorado, so who even knows uh, how to evaluate things when it comes to the, the Rockies and Coors Field? But where ha- where is he right now? Like, like obviously, the strikeouts are, are way down, but he's also not really walking anyone. It, was that just a blip, or is Verlander still kind of going through it, finding his footing this season? I, I think he's finding his footing a little bit. You know, to me, he's a kind of he's the kind of guy who like tinkers and tweaks. Scherzer is this way too, right? You hear them talk about after they had a bad start. Oh, I went and I looked at the footage and I figured something out. You know, they never really tell you what it is, but they figure it out and their mechanics and their delivery and that sequence, um, that chain of the delivery. But uh, you know, they're testing and tweaking, and he's uh, again forty. I think this is the third time that I've said that in this segment. <laughs> He's pitching in a new ballpark. You know, he's kind of been in the AL for his whole career. Of course, he's made starts um, in the National League, but he's pitching in a lot of new ballparks. He's seeing a lot of new guys, new team. Um, that stuff is all very hard to measure, but, you know, through five starts, I think some of that stuff does stand up a little bit. And uh, he, he still looks like Justin Verlander. Like, he had a start a couple of weeks ago. He was the second Mets pitcher to actually make it into the seventh inning. Uh, it's Mets starter rather uh, in mid-May, which is maybe not the greatest sign for how that rotation is, is working out. But um, he had a start where he looks phenomenal. You know, seven innings, a bunch of strikeouts, and uh, the fastball still has life. It, it still does. It still looks like it rises um, to the hitters. And so, you know, I, I have faith. I, I don't think that he's going to recreate what he did last year. That was truly sensational and aberrational stuff. But um, I think that he will even out somewhere a little bit closer to, you know, his 2019 and 2020 self. So you mentioned Sunday. We don't know if we're getting Kodai Senga or, or getting a bullpen day. Senga has not pitched on the traditional four days of MLB style rest yet so far. Although Buck Showalter sounded yesterday, like they're at least considering that I'm considering it because I, I want a closer look at what they're calling, what they call, or he calls the ghost fork pitch. Yeah. Uh, it's a splitter, but I mean, it has like we watch Kevin Gosman here every five games and that splitters nasty, but the specific way that Senga throws and, and the way that that ghost fork just dies as it gets to the plate. Um, I mean, that pitch, is, I, I'm basically asking you doing the Chris Farley thing of be like, Hey, that pitch is cool. Huh? As a question, <laughs> yeah. but like Kodai Senga has got to be a ton of fun as a Mets fan to, to have watched so far this year. My man, it is nasty. That pitch is nasty. I, I, when I watch baseball, I kind of approach it, you know, through watching pitching first, because when I played, I was a pitcher, um, my illustrious, you know, through <laughs> high school career that it was. Um, but I, I love pitching. I love the craft of it. I love the way pitchers talk about themselves. And you can tell that he has something that's different. You know, the way that batters look at it, the way that batters look at, you know, into their own souls as they're walking back to the dugout after swinging it, it has a little bit of something extra on it that not a lot of guys can really reach back and find. 
Um, Gaussman splitter is, is sensational. Gaussman in general, by the way, is sensational. Oh, yeah. He is amazing. And he's, he's, I, I trust him about as much, as much as any pitcher um, in baseball these days, because it seems like a lot of guys who I would expect to be, uh, you know, bulldog head down eating innings are, are struggling this year. Um, and I don't know if that's pitch clock related or not, but you know, to bring it back to Senga, if he can be around the strike zone enough to make you plausibly have to chase that ghost fork, he is a plus plus MLB pitcher. And that's really the only question. I mean, he's been kind of up and down this year because of that. A lot of walks, high pitch counts in early innings. And if he can, you know, be in that sort of shadow black off the plate area, um, that goes for it is just absolutely devastating. I mean, it's the definition of a put out pitch. Yeah, it's it's filthy. And I yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I don't know how much more to say. I hope we get to see him Sunday instead of a bullpen day, because I mean, bullpen day. Sure, it might be good for the Jays offense, but we only get to see the Mets a, a couple times here. I want to see Kodai Senga and, and how yeah. the Jays handle it. Um, before I let you go, Bobby, I, I got a couple quick Met, uh, Mets quick hitters for you. Um, sure. If that so first one, Jays fans had Brendan Nimmo high on their, their potential target list this offseason before they traded for Varsho and signed Kiermaier. Uh, obviously, that's a different tier of salary. He gets eight years, $162 million from the Mets, uh, hitting pretty well so far. Um, thumbs up, thumbs down on, on that deal. And obviously, the early returns are good. It's still eight years for a 30-year-old outfielder. Um, I, I think thumbs up. I, I would go as close as saying two thumbs up. They didn't really have a better option. You know, there was a lot of center fielders on the market this year, Kiermaier was one of them, but he's not really like a, uh, you know, like a long-term piece, I would say, for a team that's trying to keep, you know, keep somewhat of a core together. Of course, the Mets are a lot of hired guns this year, hmm. um, but Nimmo is part of the uh, the original core. He's one of the long, longest um, tenured Mets, if not the longest tenured Met at this point. Um, you know, him and him and Alonzo and McNeil and now Lindor is part of that, of course, with his long-term extension. But I. The, the most remarkable thing about Brandon Nimmo is that his defensive turnaround is, and this happens with other guys too. They figure out the position, they're good athletes, but he is a sensational defender in center field now. And, you know, for a while I had to talk myself into Juan Lagares' bat hmm. because he was so good in center field. And now I just feel like I have Juan Lagares who walks a ton and has a little bit of pop in his bat. And that feels really good to have um, just kind of locked down. He is kind of like the straw that stirs the drink to borrow a proverbial phrase that's overused hmm. for the Mets offense because he takes a lot of pitches and he's at the top of the lineup. And, you know, if you're a pitcher who's going to nibble, he's going to make you work. And that's, you know, maybe not the sexiest thing to watch when you're um, just tuning in as an away fan, but as a guy, as a fan who watches the guy every day, um, it, it pays off dividends. You mentioned Francisco Lindor in there. Obviously Lindor has a, a long track record that we can bet. He bounces back to uh, at some point, but still going through it a little bit right now, 220 average, 293 OBP, 99 WRC plus. So about a league average bat. Um, he was much better than that last year. He, he was a, you know, something like 60, 70 OPS points higher than that this year. Um, Thumbs up, thumbs down on Francisco Lindor rest of the way being closer to 2022 Francisco Lindor than this version. I think rest of the way is probably thumbs up. I mean, Lindor has always been very streaky. And I think that if you look at his baseball reference page, if you look at his fan graphs page, it's really hard to tell that in the aggregate because every year it just seems like he is churning out, you know, 10%, 15% above league average at the plate with phenomenal defense. And that equates to a formula that war absolutely loves him. Mm -hmm. And that's because he's a, he's a tremendous player who deserves every, every penny that is coming out of the New York Mets and Steve Cohen's bank accounts. Um, and 
also he's just like, you know, for what it's worth, just like a, a wonderful linchpin for a franchise. Like just a guy having him in the center of the diamond. He's, he's a, a really fun guy to root for. Um, and a really charismatic guy to be the leader of a team. But obviously at the plate this year, he struggled. Like there's no way to, there's no way to avoid that. He, he gets down in O2 counts. I, I don't have the numbers behind this, but just from watching him, he gets down in O2 counts a lot. And he seems like he's battling his way back. I don't know if he's a guy who's been affected as much by the pitch clock necessarily, but he does seem like he comes in a little bit off balance, particularly from the left side of the plate. I found that he's a little bit more aggressive when he's batting right-handed. So that's something to watch when he um, is facing Kikuchi in the series. But, um, you know, he, he just seems like, again, like as I characterize the Mets season, it just seems like it's a little bit, you know, uphill flooding. And I think that Lindor is kind of a microcosm of that falling behind in counts, uh, not squaring up a lot of balls because he is in O2 counts and he is having to fight off tough pitches. And I, I think that's been kind of the game plan against him this year is just attack early and hope that you can get ahead of him in the count and don't let him take his walks. Don't let him pass the baton onto the next guy, which is Pete Alonso, who is having an awesome year yeah. um, and may hit 50 home runs because he is just, you know what he does? He puts his head down, he swings hard and he hits. Um, so, you know, I, Thumbs kind of, you know, three quarters of the way up on what, what Lindor will do for the rest of the season. But he has such a, a beautiful four baseline defense that um, I'm just happy to root for him every day. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's fun. And hey, Brett Beatty at third base, it's a, it's a fun team to watch around the infield. And, and then, you know, a guy everyone uh, seems to, to kind of like in, in Mark Canna who can play. Uh, I don't know. He's got a little bit of ra- the Rays thing going on where you could put him anywhere in a pinch, but you probably just want him in a corner outfield uh, in a yeah. big situation. But Mark Canna, another guy who's a, a lot of fun uh, to play with. Bobby Wagner, I know I got to let you go. Uh, so thank you for taking the time out, man, and keep up all the great work at Tipping Pitches. Appreciate it, Blake. It was great talking to you, man. Enjoy the series. Yeah, thank you. Bobby Wagner of Tipping Pitches. You can check them out on Twitter, wherever you get your podcasts. You can check them out on Patreon uh, as well. By the way, we, we had talked to uh, our friend Sarah Langs earlier. In addition to uh, the Mets doing a, a pregame ceremony as part of the third annual Lou Gehrig Day today, uh, the New York Yankees are set to honor her uh, July 4th during Hope Week as well. So you can uh, you can look forward to that as well. Uh, it is Jay's... Mets tonight. It's going to be Chris Bassett against Justin Verlander. Um, if you've been uh, waiting for positive updates from the minor leagues, by the way, just because we have a minute here before I take a break, it's not coming from Mitch White. He had another really, really rough uh, outing in rehab yesterday, four earned runs over an inning and a third. It was a day where pretty much everyone on the AAA pitching staff uh, got touched up a little bit, which has been the case more often than not. So as we kind of look back to Manoa conversations or, or look ahead to another dense part of the schedule, it is, uh, it's not coming. Uh, Thomas Hatch was good at least, but uh, Mitch White struggled, Jackson Reese struggled, Jimmy Burnett struggled, a lot, a lot of guys who, you know, aren't immediately on the, the cusp. But here's a positive from the minors. Aurelis Martinez had three hits yesterday. He was a triple shy of the cycle and took a walk in a big spot. His batting average is only 195 because he's having an all-time rough batting average on balls and play season, but he is walking significantly more. He's striking out significantly less. And yesterday was, I believe, his 15th home run of the season already. At just 21, I know there was some shine that came off him because the strikeout rates and the poor plate discipline and things like that. He's repeating at double A right now. 
even with a 195 average that looks a certain way on the baseball card, kind of think Aralvis might be pushing a triple A call up, especially as Addison Barger uh, continues to be on the IL. So the minor league look around comes with some positive and some negative, and we'll talk to some prospect people uh, next week and get kind of a, an up and down the system update on a lot of guys, but particularly an Arelvis Martinez, maybe take a look at a, at a Chad Dallas, who's been uh, really opening some eyes uh, as well down in the minor league system. Right now, though, we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we're going to talk to Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports, of MLB Now, of the Bandwagon Podcast. She wrote a piece yesterday, a deep dive on how the pitch clock has changed what managers are doing with the challenge. Because, hey, if the pitcher has to get set and the hitter has to get set quicker than they did last year, guess who has less time to figure out if a play is worth challenging to get on the little phone and call whoever's looking at those things? Major League managers are not challenging less, but they are challenging much less effectively. The manager of the Toronto Blue Jays is not challenging very effectively uh, at all. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the crowded field of mediocrity that is the National League, and we'll continue to get set for Jays Mets as we talk to Hannah Kaiser next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. If you recognize that song, you either have immaculate taste in modern emo music or you listen to the Bandwagon podcast, which Hannah Kaiser hosts. Hosts. Uh, she's also with Yahoo Sports and MLB Now. Hannah, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me and for shouting out the bandwagon. Yeah, of course. And and the Oso Oso choice as the uh, as the theme music is just uh, it's perfect. It's perfect. So, Hannah, you wrote something at Yahoo Sports this weekend, and it highlighted some numbers that w- were Jays fans looking at this Mets series this weekend, and a big play happens. If Buck Showalter goes to the challenge system and calls a challenge. If this were last year, you'd be feeling very, very badly about it. Uh, this year, not so much. Buck Showalter, kind of the king of the challenge in recent years. Um, what are we seeing with the pitch clock's effect on managerial challenges this year? I know people could read the article as well, but this is radio, so we'll, we'll do it this way. Um, Buck Showalter has fallen off dramatically. He has, which I didn't intend to call out Buck specifically, <laughs> but it does end up really highlighting um, maybe less so the Mets uh, incompetence at it this year, but a little bit, but more so how good they were at it last year and how good they were at it last year draws attention to the changes this year. So Jason Stark at The Athletic wrote right before this season started about how, in addition to the pitch clock affecting how long at-bats take, that MLB wanted the replay challenges to be on a pitch clock as well. So managers have a lot less time to decide if they want to challenge calls. And that's a problem for the Mets because last year the Mets drew a ton of attention to this, which was really interesting that they had a ton of faith in Harrison Friedland, their guy in the video room somewhere in their dugout who was watching, you know, slow-mo replays of every close call and deciding and, you know, relaying to Buck whether or not they should challenge that call. And and they were so good at it. He had like an 80%, the Mets as a whole had like an 80% success rate on getting um, challenges, getting calls overturned when they challenged them. 
this year they have one of the worst success rates and it you know without knowing exactly what hmm. their process is i assume it has something to do with the fact that they just don't have nearly as much time which is what mlb wanted they wanted teams to be like you got to make these decisions on the fly if it's the kind of thing that you've got to look at five different angles and super slow motion to figure out that the call was blown. Maybe we just don't challenge it. So I understand that's what, you know, the league as a whole wants for games is to not get bogged down in these nitty gritty replays. But what I thought was really interesting in running the numbers was that, you know, across the board managers are less successful this year. And that's, that's like understandable and excusable. You have less time to make the decision. Hmm. What surprised me was that they're not, challenging more often as a result they're sort of being just as conservative with their challenges on a whole mlb teams are challenging less than once every four games each which is exactly the same rate as they were challenging as a whole league as a whole last year so they're sort of they're challenging the same amount but they're getting them right less often because they're just sort of you know they're having less time to look at it ahead of time and my my sort of advocacy for them was like you guys should challenge more liberally like you you've got to take into account it's going to be less precise this year and the Mets in particular have been a lot less precise this year they've gotten two of 12 two of 11 uh overturned so challenge more liberally yeah and implore the umpires yeah and look it's uh I, I understand to some degree the like well save it in case there's a higher leverage spot later but the numbers you just laid out is that the managers don't use it later anyway they just they just they let don't. it sit there and you know this is there's an element of it of like if you get it right you keep your challenge if you get it wrong you lose it and stuff um but if you're saving, uh, it, it, I get frustrated. It's the same rules in the NBA and coaches will complain about like, oh, you shouldn't lose your challenge. If you get it right, you should keep it and keep it and keep it. But NBA coaches are even worse than baseball managers at the challenge in the NBA. I think the success rate is 44%. And in your article, wow. you had it at 45.8%. I guess the question yep. that flows from this when I see those numbers is like, okay, we all accept that these are 50-50 calls. If managers in baseball and coaches in basketball are getting them right fewer than 50% of the time, do we even really need the challenge system? Like, where where do you land on that element of it? And, and, and that's, like, down to 45% this year now that they're having to make it more, more quickly, more on the slides. Even last year when they had all this time and they were studying, it, like, every slow-mo replay, the Mets were great. They were, like, 80%. But the league as a whole was still, I think, like, 49, less than 50-50. So I don't know what they were looking at. I do think... The success rate in some ways doesn't matter. Like if it, if you got a challenge every day, 162 games, you use your challenge and you get 50 overturn calls, that seems worth it. But I, I agree with you that like if we're not, if the challenge itself doesn't seem like a super strategic move, like they're not, you know, necessarily created challenges. And we have this, the way the challenges work is there are umpires who work at the commissioner's office in New York City, and they're in that replay room, and they have a gazillion screens in front of them. I've seen it. They've let me sort of walk through it, and they're always in there, and they're always watching all the games. And so I kind of feel like this is the way it is later in the game. It's like if it's after the seventh inning, the umpires just decide if they should kick it to the, the replay umpires. And that's what I feel every close call should be. Like there should be someone watching the game, which they are, just relaying to the umpires, they have the little earpieces, they can do this, and just saying, like, actually, hold up, let's take a look at that call on the close calls and not go through this sort of 
rigmarole of hmm. waiting to see if the managers want to challenge or not. Like, just get every call right, but don't I, don't slow the game down in in having the umpire or having the managers have to decide if they want to challenge. Uh, we already have people looking at these calls. I'm with you, and I think that would help the Blue Jays a lot because their managerial team has not done well uh, challenging calls here. Uh, the Jays are playing the Mets this weekend, and, and another thing that you – so you you guys on the Bandwagon podcast kind of did your one-third of the week check-in this week, and so obviously some things are going to hold up, some things are not going to hold up. You had kind of as a headline item, one of the things that you're curious if it holds up is the NL is a crowded field of mediocrity. Uh, again, to kind of spoil the the podcast, is that going to continue? Are we finally going to see any of these National League teams, Mets included, uh, pull away from the pack and look better than just, you know, fringe contender? Are there actual good teams somewhere in these National League teams? There must be, but the, if you look at the run differentials, it doesn't actually speak to, oh, you know, think the hierarchy has established itself and now it's just going to widen in the same way that it does in the, in the American League. If you look at just the American League and sort of take the division divides out of it, but just kind of look at the the teams as a whole, like if you look at like the wild card rates, for instance, in the American League, it goes pretty smoothly from biggest positive run differential to biggest negative run differential. You know what I mean? Like the Mm -hmm. the teams that are scoring the most runs have the most likely chance of winning the wild card. And the teams that are giving up the most runs and scoring the fewest are are at the bottom in the NL. That doesn't hold true at all. Like Hmm. currently there are division leaders in the national league with negative run differentials, looking at you, Milwaukee Brewers. (laughs) And there are teams as far back as like way out of the current wild card standings with positive run differentials. And I, so at some point they, you know, the talent should force teams to divide themselves a little bit, but right now what we're seeing is not only those standings really crowded, but they could sort of stay crowded and reorganize themselves. Like the, the St. Louis Cardinals have a positive run differential and they are below the Phillies and the Reds and the Marlins who all had a huge negative run differential in the wild card race. So they could move up and the Phillies could move down without the standings really separating out that much. The Marlins are insane. They're a game over 500 and have been outscored by 54 runs. It's if you ever needed a team to com- contrast the, you know, the American League East to the National League East, uh, Miami surviving with that kind of run differential while every team in the AL East has a, a nice positive run differential and is just fighting to stay above water. Uh, it's a good one. So I, I want to ask about the, the Mets specifically because obviously they were the story of the offseason with, with how much money they they poured into the roster, how much they invested in, um, you know, everything from aging pitchers to re-signing their own homegrown outfielders to, to adding around the fringes. It's been a bit of a disappointing start for them. Some of that comes down to just injury, misfortune, and things like that. Um, do you think with the Mets specifically, we'll see them start to figure it out and be more like what Steve Cohen envisioned when he dumped billions and billions of dollars into this roster? I think we will for the, like the Mets uh, get compared a lot to the Padres because they're mm-hmm. both teams that really, you know, no holds barred approach to this offseason, spent a ton of money and got off to slow starts. But I think the Mets are in some ways in a better spot because the Mets went into this season disappointing their fans by being like, 
we're not putting Francisco Alvarez on the opening day roster, and we're not putting Mark Vientos on the opening day roster. We're, we're going to kind of keep those players in reserve or whatever, wait for them to work on their defense in the minors or something. And then they pushed their way into the majors by the way that they were performing in the minor leagues. And since they've gotten to the majors, they've really performed. So that kind of like that silver bullet, keep it, you know, if you need it, don't fire it until you need it is working out for them. Like Francisco Alvarez has been really phenomenal. Like he's had a lot of really big hits. He's playing much better defense than what people expected him to, to, to play. And, and Brett Beatty, who's another one of these rookies that they called up, He's been really good, like, in key spots. And, and Mark Vientos, since he's come up, has looked pretty good. So I think, well, his WRC Plus is looking hmm. pretty disappointing. Maybe maybe not so much Mark Vientos. But I think the Mets have room to get on. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, mm-hmm. all right, they have – that's a lot of rookies that to have in the major leagues. And, and if all those guys start to get more comfortable and there's, you know, not just making – getting big hits, but getting hits consistently. And if Scherzer and Verlander are healthier than they were at the start of the season and, and they return to their form. Like, I think there's a real path for the Mets to look like what we expected them to look like. I do think the biggest concern for the Mets is that it kind of felt like at the outset of the season, oh, they almost have too much pitching. So like Tyler McGill, who, was a respectable starter last year. He's not going to start in the rotation. And there were stories written about, like, how does he feel about, you know, going back to AAA? And pretty quickly it started to look like, first of all, not only was Tyler McGill not who he was last year, but and, and David Peterson as well, same sort of category of, like, guys who filled in last year and, and looked really good when they had to fill in in the rotation, and now they're not. There's no room for them. They suddenly were thrust back into the rotation, and they didn't look that good, and they were – you know, having to make a lot more starts than I think the Mets anticipated they would have to make. So the pitching is looking significantly thinner <laughs> than it did. And the bullpen without uh, Edwin Diaz, it's like the the effects that Edwin Diaz's injury had on sort of projected war for bullpens like the Mets went from having just like the best projected bullpen to like something in the middle of the pack is like just from that one injury which it's hard you know we think we talk a lot of baseball about how one player can't have a huge impact but Edwin Diaz was like a, a really impactful player we don't think of closers as being like impact players necessarily but he really was last year so I think the concern is how do they fill all of the like with with Scherzer and Berliner in particular I think there was a lot of talk going into the season of like, you got to keep them healthy for the end of the season and for October. If you have to, you know, give them extra rest days in April and May and maybe even June, you do that. But that was based on a version of events in which the Mets are cruising easily into the postseason and you can afford to hold back your, your best pitchers. And now they've sort of played themselves into a position where like, they really need Scherzer and Verlander every five days to go out there and, and give them a chance to win and perhaps even give them some length and how they balance that with wanting to give those guys rest throughout what is a very long season. I don't necessarily know how they do that without, you know, making some acquisitions potentially. Yeah. And to, it's to the extent that we may, it sounds like see Kodai Senga on standard major league baseball rest on Sunday, not confirmed yet, but that sounds like they're kicking it around instead of giving him the extra day. So uh, that catches up on you 
quick, uh, Hannah, it wasn't the one of the highlight items. It, it's not a part of the NL field of mediocrity, but um, this is a Toronto show. The Jays are playing the Mets. Is there, you know, at the one third mark check-in, have the Jays been on the, the more disappointing end for you? It, the, the Jays, I mean, you guys, I'm sure know better than I do. Maybe you, you're sure your listeners mm-hmm. do too. It's hard for me to pinpoint what they're not doing well necessarily because it does, I mean, we, you you touched on this. They're actually doing a lot of things well. They have a positive run differential. The AL East is just a very difficult <laughs> division to play in. They're a little disappointing to me, but they're above 500. Man, it's a really tough division. Sorry, I'm just looking at the standings again, and I was like, 30 and 27, and they're in fourth place? That's uh, that's disappointing. I I don't know. They look good. You tell me. Why are they <laughs> not winning more? It's, it is it is a tough one. And, like, Alec Manoa has obviously gotten the headlines for, you know, struggling in the rotation. Yeah. But Jose Barrios has bounced back. Yusei Kikuchi's been a little better. Chris Bassett came over from the Mets and has been great. It's really just – Yeah. Yeah. Manoa's the only guy who's really on, on the pitcher side not lived up to expectations. And then on the hitter side, like, Vlad hasn't hit for a ton of power, but Bo Bichette's been one of the best hitters in baseball. So uh, how does all that shake out? I, I don't know. They're also, like – some of it is just – they've timed their worst baseball with when they're playing against the American league East. So it looks and feels extra bad. Like you win two of 13 against the AL East over two weeks and uh, the sky's falling. I I don't know. Will you be down at at Jay's Mets? I might go tomorrow. I can't go today because I'm got some TV obligations later Ah. in the day, but I'm hoping to maybe go tomorrow. Who's I'm looking. I'm like, want to see now these pictures. You know what? I kind of do want to see, on Sunday, you take a Kuchi versus Kodai Senga. If yeah. that's the matchup, that would be fun. I that's like a, a Japanese pitcher matchup. Doesn't we don't get a lot of that here, and I, I think that'd be really interesting get to see although tonight's going to be justin verlander so that's pretty cool yeah and and tonight i I just wanted to mention that we had sarah langs uh, on the show a little earlier and tonight pregame there she'll be involved in a a pregame ceremony there and i know um of course everyone around baseball loves sarah but i know that you guys have crossed paths with mlb uh as well how cool has it been to see all the all the love and support for sarah today it's been really incredible i mean the way that teams are finding opportunities I, I just saw the Yankees just sent out sort of what they're going to do to honor Sarah Langs and they posted a video on Twitter of surprising her with this news I really uh, have a lot of appreciation for the way that teams are finding individual ways to honor her I was I do some SNY with the Mets Network and I was on a day when everybody surprised her by wearing the ALS shirts like I just think the 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 way that people and organizations and teams and the league and TV channels and all that are sort of continuing to find like personalized ways to shout her out and not just waiting for ALS day is is really nice. Yeah, it's great. Um, Hannah, we, I know we got to let you go here. You, you've got MLB now today, uh, in addition to your other, your other TV duties. Um, but quickly before we let you go, did you want to take any shots at the San Diego Padres and the fact that they've, you know, there are like 150 (laughs) players around baseball who, since I forget the exact stat you referenced the other week on MLB now, but 27 players. So since the end of 2019, that could have been Padres that are now playing elsewhere. Uh, you wonder why they don't have a a lot of depth right now. It's, you know, it feels like, oh, they have so many great players. And then when you look at the lineup, it's not. It's like four great players. And four great players is a is a decent number of great players to have. But if you're willing to make really the thing that I don't understand is like if you're if you if you're willing to throw money at 
problems and you're willing to make really bold moves, I still think you could have done it better. Like, I don't think that these were the smartest, expensive moves they could have made. Like, Xander Bogart is an incredible player, and I'm sure he makes every team better in some way. But does he make the Padres more better than maybe going after, like, a a pitcher would have? You know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> the, the, the specific ways that they're choosing to be bold – you can't say that it's making them worse, but I don't know that it's making them as much better as it would be if they sort of reallocated those resources. Yeah, it's tough, tough year for fans of teams where their owners spent all the money like we would want them to. So let's hope that there's no uh, overreaction uh, to that in the other direction. Hannah Kaiser, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time out and keep up all the great work. Appreciate it. Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports, MLB Now, of the bandwagon podcast uh, you can check her out on mlb tv and smy pretty regularly uh really great stuff that's uh, one of my favorite baseball podcasts so toronto blue jays new york mets it's chris bassett against justin verlander tonight jose Barrios against tyler mcgill tomorrow and sunday yusei kikuchi against question mark potentially kodai senga which would be a cool uh japanese pitcher battle kodai senga again as i talked about with bobby wagner that ghost fork splitter grip that just dies as it gets to the plate. Um, obviously, we here in Toronto have a, a terrific appreciation of a good splitter at this point, given what Kevin Gosman's done over the last two years. Uh, Senga's is pretty cool, too. Uh, Gosman, again, oh, 11Ks, six and two-thirds shutout innings yesterday. I'm just looking at my notes from the top of the show. He is on uh, another level right now. Jays have won four of six. Um, in addition to... The Jays game tonight, we had Sarah Langs, our friend from MLB.com and MLB on earlier. And I just want to reset some of what we were talking about with that. So Sarah, a friend of the show and one of the most beloved people around all of baseball, um, has been living with ALS. And she announced that heading into the playoffs last season. Uh, today is the third annual Lou Gehrig Day around baseball. So keep an eye out for the pregame ceremony tonight. If you can, 7-10 first pitch. So broadcast will start at 7. There there will be a pregame ceremony involving Sarah, who is a New York native and grew up watching the Mets. Um, the Amazing Mets Foundation will present Project ALS with a $10,000 grant for research in honor of Sarah. Um, Sarah's also been doing a fist bumps for ALS campaign that's raised almost $30,000 uh, for ALS awareness and research. You can check that out on her um, social pages at S Langs on sports. Um, there's also going to be in every broadcast booth around baseball this weekend, a Langs star. You'll be able to see it. It'll be popping up on MLB network and things like that. Uh, and I'm sure you'll see it on our blue Jays broadcast tonight as well. Um, you can purchase one of those Langs stars in support of project ALS. You can go to starsforsarah.org. Um, mostly though, I would just urge you to Go to Sarah's social media feeds, go to MLB.com, go to ESPN.com, um, look around baseball at the outpouring of love and support for Sarah, but also Sarah's message. And her message through all of this has been that, yeah, Lou Gehrig Day is an awesome thing to celebrate. And it's great that when people pass on, we quote, quote unquote, give them their flowers or show love and appreciation. Um, but Sarah has really urged people to not wait until then to do those things, to, to make every moment um, count. And she, you know, had an essay up at e at ESPN.com today. And she quoted Lou Gehrig's famous speech, of course, and really highlighted how beyond just the, you know, luckiest man on earth, there was so much gratefulness 
in that and why he felt gratitude toward the people around baseball and toward the people around him. And Sarah urges us to take a cue from her, to take a cue from Lou and appreciate others tangibly every day and never, you know, always show that appreciation. So I think if, if we can all keep that, you know, front of mind today and this weekend and moving forward, that's a, a real positive from what Sarah's been going through and the strength strength she's shown through all of this. Um, Chris Bassett, Justin Verlander tonight, the Jeff Merrick show is coming on next. There is a lot in the hockey world, of course, to continue sorting through Blair and Barker. Have you uh, to set up the Jays series even further in the five to seven slot Jays talk plus will be back Monday at 10 a.m. Uh, the Jays are 24 and 12 against non AL East opponents. They've won nine of those 12 series. Were you talking about 10 of 13? Let's hope so. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll talk to you Monday at 10 a.m.